just wish that we could celebrate more the wonderful things that our children have. I think we spend so much time trying to smooth out <laughs> and correct. Well, maybe they shouldn't really be more like neurotypicals. Look at the mess neurotypicals are in. I'm Tracy Spencer Walsh, and this is the It's Special podcast, a podcast for you to overhear my conversations with top professionals in the world of special needs and law and civil rights. We are curating information about special children's rights and distilling it into bite-sized pieces for all to enjoy. So today we have with us Dr. Cecilia McCartan, a developmental pediatrician and specializing in autism. Mm -hmm. And actually, may I call you Cece? Of course, everybody does. Okay. <laughs> Cece, I don't know if you recall, but over 25 years ago, you diagnosed one of my family members really? with autism, mm -hmm. and then several years later, diagnosed his brother. Mm. And it wasn't an autism diagnosis, at the time, it was a PDD diagnosis, exactly. mm -hmm. which is pervasive developmental disorder, which you'll tell us about. But thank you so much for being here. I appreciate you taking the time to speak with me today. Well, it's my pleasure. It really is. Thank you. So why don't you tell us about yourself? You know, <laughs> tell, tell us how you got to specialize in autism. Um, it was almost a perfect storm. At one point, a family member had a son who was diagnosed with autism. And I really saw firsthand what happened to that child, what happened to the family, and what they had to deal with on an everyday basis. And, you know, with Irish families, there are no holes barred when they're having a conversation. So I really knew about all the nitty-gritty of everything that they were going through. And at the same time, I had been in academic medicine at that point for 20 years. And it was running a program and teaching and writing grants, 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 grants. And I was really beginning to tire of that and wanting very, very much to get back to being a hands-on doctor again and taking care of families and children. So these two things happened almost simultaneously, and I began to think that, okay, maybe it's time for a change now. So I decided I would leave academic medicine, and I would open up a center for developmental disability. And I was particularly interested in autism because of my family experience. It just so happened that also at that time, the third element of the perfect storm, that there was a growing recognition of the prevalence of autism. And more and more people were coming into my center, and the children really had many of the classical presentations of a child who would be autistic, or as it's called now, on the spectrum. And we started my team. I had ABA people, and I had speech and language people, and OTs, because we gave therapy also at the center. We put our heads together about what could we do to help these children. And we began to, in some ways, come up with a program of intervention. 
And some of the families wanted us to see if this would work with their children. And so we said, fine. So the children would come to us each day and we would do our program and make modifications and everything. And the children, many of them, really had some very, very nice results. And the parents were very obviously happy and pleased by it. And a small group of them, the fourth element of the perfect storm, came and asked me if I would be willing to start a school for children with autism. And what time period are we talking about? We're talking about 20 years ago, so around 2000. Hmm, Okay. And I really knew nothing about starting a school, absolutely nothing. And so not knowing anything Of course, it's easy to say yes. (laughs) (laughs) Be careful what you say yes to. (laughs) Because you have no idea what you're getting into. So I said, oh, sure, we can start a school. (laughs) And that's what we did. We started a school. And it's still in existence now. The name has been changed. It used to be the McCartan School, but now it's called... I remember well. I know. (laughs) Now it's called Keswell. And it's still really an excellent school And the woman who runs it now, Dr. Ivy Feldman, is really a wonderful, wonderful therapist and so totally understands um, children who are on the spectrum and how to begin to help them. So... And as you mentioned just now, on the spectrum. So autism is a spectrum disorder. Correct. And the Keswell School, the McCartan School previously, is a one-to-one instructional model. Mm -hmm. And not all students with autism need one-to-one instruction. Is that correct? That's correct. So you were explaining and describing how it led you to doing more work with patients directly and autism. And what are you doing currently today? Oh, (laughs) well, one of my real desires when I was at the McCartan School was that many parents could come to us And they wanted their child to come to the school. But it was a private school, privately funded. And many people really couldn't afford the amounts of money that it takes to really do one-on-one therapy with a child. And I, I have to say, it bothered me so much. It bothered me so much that I couldn't help a parent because I remember what my relative felt. I saw what she felt. And it kept coming back again and again and again. And I just decided that I wanted to really do something for families who economically uh, really couldn't afford a private center financially. So I wanted to do that, but of course... The school wanted to maintain itself and its its character, which is totally understandable. So I just said, it's been a fantastic 15 years. Thank you so much. It's been probably the best 15 years that I've spent in medicine, but now I have to do something else. So I left, and some people came with me, and we did some research for almost a year to find out what areas in New York City lacked the basic kinds of therapies and interventions that were really, truly necessary if you wanted to help children with autism. And there were three areas that came up. There was Brooklyn, 
Now, I live in Connecticut. There was no way I was going to go to Brooklyn. (laughs) That's a long commute. It's a very, very, very long commute. And then there was Upper Manhattan. But as we looked more deeply into that, there were many, many agencies heading to Upper Manhattan. So we felt that soon the services really would be there for them. And then came the Bronx. And the Bronx has great meaning for me because that's where I went to Albert Einstein Medical School, and that's in the Bronx. And I did all my training at Jacoby Hospital, and that's in the Bronx. On Pelham Parkway. Right, on Pelham Parkway. And my first jobs were in the Bronx. So I felt that it was a sign. And I said, okay, we're going to the Bronx. And that's what we did. It took us a while. We had to raise the money ourselves, and that took almost three years to raise the money. And we met some very, really very special, wonderful people along the way who helped us tremendously. And there were some parents of children that I took care of and was still taking care of that were enormous in their generosity in terms of what we wanted to do. So that's great. I hail from the Bronx, by the way. I was um, born in in what used to be Misericordia Hospital. Ah, okay. And all of my schooling was in the Bronx. Parochial school in Woodlawn, Mm -hmm. Cardinal Spellman High School School. on Baychester Avenue. So the Bronx is near and dear to my heart, for sure. And so, so tell us about what the program is. Well, it's an early intervention program because I truly believe the earlier that we get the children, the more malleable their brain is. And you can do a tremendous amount if you really are in a good early intervention program. You can see results that are just marvelous for the children. So I said, okay, let's start an early intervention. And then once we get our foundation settled, we can move on to three and five. And God willing, once we get that settled, we can move on to a school. But first we have to do the first step, which is early intervention. So we have children. Early intervention, as you know, is from zero to three. I would say that the earliest that we get the children really would be a year and a half. And that's because of diagnosis? It's because of diagnosis. And it's really because I think culturally, many people are much more accepting of various paths of development. And there's always a family member that was exactly like this and didn't talk until he was three. And, you and know, he's a boy. <laughs> he's boys a are boy. slower at speaking. <laughs> right. You know, and he's the last one. Everybody speaks for him so he doesn't have to speak. So that's the earliest that we get them, although you really can. And I feel very comfortable diagnosing earlier than 18 months. As far as I'm concerned, I'm happy that we get them at 18 months, but it only gives us a year and a half to really work with them. And then the Board of Ed takes them into CPSC. So pediatricians these days, my son is 24, we, they, they weren't doing it when he was seeing a pediatrician during that developmental stage. But now they are checking for autism proactively now, mm-hmm. I understand it, right? They are. They hand out very specific questionnaires to the parents. Usually there's the one that they hand out most frequently is called the CHAT. And it asks a series of questions, and then they score it. Uh, Very easy. You just count up the number of of no's, and then they can make a referral to the local early intervention center in terms of the town that the family lives in. 
How effective has that been, do you think? Uh, I think it depends on the pediatrician. Yeah, I suppose that would be true. Yeah. yeah. I mean, some pediatricians are very savvy about development. And what's the difference between a pediatrician and a developmental pediatrician? Is there a distinction there? The distinction is just in how many years you've really taken the time to study. You've done a specialty training in developmental pediatrics. But developmental pediatrics has anything to do with the development of the child. So it can be motor issues. It can be language issues. It can be cognitive issues. It can be learning issues. It can be behaviors. So it's a pretty wide spectrum of things that a developmental pediatrician really sinks their teeth into. So for me, I was very interested in autism. And so that became a little cubbyhole for me to put my teeth into. But other developmental pediatricians have other subspecialties. You mentioned earlier how when you got involved with autism, that there was an increase Mm -hmm. in autism. And I just, for people listening today, I know that there's been this tension Mm -hmm. between is it really more prevalent or is it now just being overly diagnosed? (laughs) And what would you say to that? Well, you know, it's not a clear line. It's not a clear distinction here. Because there's been greater awareness of this entity called autism, the media has played an enormous role in alerting parents and talking about it and highlighting stories. So there's been a growing awareness of developmental stages and what your child should be doing. And so lots of moms are very, very aware of that and very alert to it when their child doesn't meet those milestones. The other thing that's happened is that many children now go to nursery school. I mean, that was not so 30 years ago. You stayed home until you went to kindergarten. That's a good point. And so nursery school teachers are very well educated in terms of what is the, I'll use this word, norm in terms of development, and when a child is having difficulty, they see it. And they often bring that right up to the parents and suggest that the child get evaluated. So we have a greater awareness. There's a much, much larger knowledge base about these signs of autism. And so there are more people recognizing it. So there's a greater recognition of it that's going to pump the numbers up. As the numbers have been pumped up, interestingly enough, children who years ago would be classified as being, I hate this term, but mentally retarded, okay, they're falling now over onto the spectrum side. So the numbers of children classified... We say intellectual disability now. That's correct, that they have an intellectual or a cognitive disability. Those numbers are going down, but the numbers of autism are going up. The other thing that's completely confused the whole situation are the psychiatrists (laughs) and that famous book, the Diagnostic Standard Manual, okay, the DSM. Which teased out Asperger's in DSM-5. 
Don't get me started on that. <laughs> we'll be here for a very long time tonight talking we'll, about we'll have, that. That'll have to be a separate podcast. Okay, we'll do a separate podcast. And you on can that say one. this because you're married to a psychiatrist. Yes, I am. <laughs> I am married to a psychiatrist, and I tell him all the time, you guys have totally messed us up. <laughs> but with every, every edition of the DSM that came out, they kept changing what this spectrum was. And sometimes it was re- a little restricted. Sometimes it took in everything that you could possibly put on a piece of paper. And so you had expansion of the symptoms, the symptomatology and the signs of autism. And so we get more and more children coming in under that umbrella. And so there was a reverse in the last DSM-5, because before there was a diagnosis of Asperger's, okay, and they decided that those children did not fall in under the autism spectrum. What they want us to do with these kids (laughs) is something that they don't tackle, but those children exist. So in the DSM-5, there's still three criteria, Mm -hmm. three main criteria for a diagnosis of autism. But one criteria that came in that really wasn't in the previous ones was sensory integration problems. And that's a whole section in and of itself. Just for our listeners who may not know what the criteria is for a diagnosis Mm -hmm. of autism, would you mind sharing that with us? Well, first and foremost, it's really language, expressive, receptive language, also what's called pragmatic language, which is the language you would use in social interactions. It's conversation. All right. And then the next thing that comes up is the whole area of social relatedness children who have a hard time relating to other children, relating to other adults, uh, don't seek out interactions with them. Now, this third one of really having these increased sensitivities, if you will, for a sensory disorder. Now, underneath each of these headings, there's lots of subheadings, but those are the three main ones that you would And so those sensory issues, that's environmental sensory issues, body sensory issues? It's just your five senses, okay, exactly. And so often children who are on the autism spectrum have a lot of tactile sensitivities um, that they don't like certain textures of clothing. They don't like certain textures of food. They also don't like touching certain textures, like they don't like playing with clay or they don't like playing with paints. So that's touch, right? And then sometimes they have sensitivities with their hearing in that they don't like loud sounds. Now, that's pretty difficult if you live in New York City because you're surrounded by loud sounds. But there's a whole group of children who the ambulances and the fire engines do not bother them. Those sounds don't bother them at all. But the sound of the refrigerator clicking on and off bothers them. Or singing happy birthday. Happy birthday, yes. Many of the children who are on the spectrum have perfect pitch. And when a group of children or adults start singing happy birthday, there's a lot of non-perfect pitch. And it hurts them. It really causes them pain. And that's why they put their fingers in their ears because they want to block it out. Run under the table. Yeah. Right. 
Yes, I've seen it. I know. And it's good for our audience to hear mm-hmm. that, you know, this pain point, that this is not just a behavior. No, this no. This is it's, an actual pain point. It is. A lot of the behaviors that we characteristically say falls under autism spectrum, these signs that the children's display are really because of their sensitivities. It hurts them. It really hurts them. And it's it, they're not being difficult. It's the world is difficult for them. That's exactly right. They're trying to protect themselves. So, Dr. McCartan, Cece, yes. <laughs> what, what have you seen that might be different or more troubling or more prevalent since the COVID pandemic? Oh, my goodness. The pandemic has affected the world. For children who have special needs, it has really done a number on them. First of all, if we just speak about children who are on the spectrum, they really need face-to-face teaching. You really have to be in their face in order to get them to pay attention. So if you remove the presence of being in a school with a teacher, and if you remove no other children around them so they can't copy or imitate, you have children that in many ways are environmentally isolated. And I've seen children that before the lockdown the COVID lockdown, we knew where the children were developmentally at the center. And then when they came back to us after seven or eight months, they had lost so many skills, Mm -hmm. so many skills, and they had developed so many skills that were not helpful. Replacement skills. Exactly. And so I think for our children, they lost a whole block of time and what is your thoughts about making that up? You, you know, we started this conversation talking about the malleability mm-hmm. of the young brain and right. how important early intervention is. So what happens to this lost time? Do you know? Does anyone know? Again, you know, if you have 10 children in the room and they all have the diagnosis of autism, you have 10 different presentations. That's why it's a spectrum. Because no two children are the same. If you know one child with autism, you only know one child That's with correct. autism, That's right? That's correct. Right. <laughs> Sounds like a lot of wisdom in that statement. So there are some children who, when we get them back, yes, we start all over again, figure out where they are at the baseline, and you can see things coming back relatively quickly for them. There are other children, it's as if they've never experienced what we're showing them, we're demonstrating them. And some come back, but it's a much, much slower process for them. And I've had some children who just never regained what they had before. And how important is the family element to helping with skills? The family is crucial, absolutely crucial. I can tell you a good thing that happened with COVID was because we couldn't go into the home, we did, just like the rest of the world, a teletherapy. But what happened when the mom was with the child on one side of the screen and the therapist was on the other side of the screen, even though the therapist would be going through what she wanted the mom to do, it was 
very hard for them to really understand or to appreciate what she was saying. So we thought, this is really useless. So let's put a facilitator in there. So we found people that were willing to go into the home. And what we did was that every session had the parent, the child, and a facilitator. And on the other side of the screen was the therapist, ABA therapist, speech and language therapist, OT, occupational therapy person. And the facilitator would show the mom what to do based on the instructions from the therapist. The moms were thrilled. Mm. They are still asking for us to do this with our home program. Wow. With some of the children, they have only a home program because that's what the parents... Because they felt more empowered? Absolutely. That's the word. They felt it was the first time in their life that they really began to understand their child and that they knew they knew how to react to the child to help him or her. And I mean, it was amazing. It was absolutely amazing. Sounds like this needs to be the next chapter for you right. in, in, build, <laughs> <laughs> in building this out. And boy, that is a great silver lining. Yeah. Now, here we are, 2021. Are we any closer to what causes autism? No, we're not. I mean, if you look at the genetic work that's done, God bless the geneticists, really, They've really dug very, very deep. But every time you pick up an article, it's another gene that's been implicated in the spectrum. So nobody has really put the picture together yet. The puzzle. (laughs) It is a puzzle, that's for sure. (laughs) And it's just not missing one piece. (laughs) It's missing many pieces. But I know that what's going to happen is that eventually we'll accumulate enough information that will be able to develop subtypes based on their genetic makeup of a child who has this presentation of autism spectrum. And once you're able to do that, then you can really begin to think about specific interventions. I know that that's going to come. I just know that it's going to come. And that's going to be so exciting because that brings in the whole, whole area of gene therapy. Mm. Well, that will be exciting when that does come. Absolutely. Something that you said earlier when we were talking about diagnosis, you said that much of the time the children aren't diagnosed until as earliest about a year and a half. You would feel comfortable diagnosing sooner than that. Does that have anything to do with the work that Yale did on its eye tracking? Eye tracking is done a lot, but it's usually done more in research rather than in... um, In the actual practice? In the actual practice. I mean, for me, I feel comfortable because I've been doing this for so many years. You know, it's almost as if somebody walks into our waiting room and I just look out and I can smell it. Mm. (laughs) That's not what I want, but you can see very, very quickly. But that's because this is what I've done for all of these years. All right. But for others, it's just harder, I think, if they don't have the experience. Um, And that's why I think it's important to go to a center or to go to a doctor who has experience in diagnosing children. Now, not everybody who comes to me do I give the diagnosis of autism to. Absolutely not. 
Okay. Just last week, I mean, somebody came and said, I know my child is autistic. And I said, after we evaluated, I said, well, I'm, I'm really happy to say to you, your child is not autistic. Okay. So it's not as if it's a rubber stamp, you know, uh, but you have to be aware of the subtleties. Right. And with more awareness, parents hopefully are, are seeking this out more often and I'm sure both of us would encourage parents listening today that if they have a suspicion that there may be autism, they should have it checked out by Absol- someone with absolutely. experience. Absolutely. And, and a good pediatrician will send them really to an early intervention center where they can get a very, very thorough workup. Now, some centers are still doing um, tele-evaluations, which I don't really think give you the essence of the child. I think you have to do in-person evaluations to really know the child. Yeah. And here in New York, physicians are able to do in-person evaluations, right? Absolutely. So with respect to your early intervention, what is it called, by the way? Is there a name to it? No, we just call it an integrated program. Okay. All right. (laughs) And uh, what is the the future of the program, if you know? Any plans for anything different or adding to it? Well, we always want to add to it. What usually happens is that we add things as we unearth more things in the children. And as we unearth more things in the children— we say, oh, well, there are children like that, so we better add this when we see them in terms of helping them. But I think it's not a specific ABA program. No, ABA, one shoe does not fit everybody, all right? This is a pervasive disorder, and you need all the disciplines working with the family and with the child. So you absolutely have to have speech and language. You absolutely have to have OT. Some children have gross motor problems. You have to have PT. So you really have to evaluate the child and determine what that child needs, and then you set up the program. But it's not isolated disciplines. So you have an ABA person who has a language program. They develop language programs. That's part of their training. However, we have our speech and language person sit and work with the ABA person to let the ABA person know where that child is developmentally in terms of language and how to go about attacking that developmental level. And even in some cases would sit down and work with the ABA therapist to draw up the program. It's the same thing for OT because many of the children have such sensory issues that If they try to go in and sit for a speech and language session or for an an ABA session, they are so dysregulated that it's not an efficient session for those children. So what the OT will say is before you begin your session, take 10 minutes out of your session and do some sensory activities with the child. It's called a sensory diet. That will help to regulate the child and the child will pay attention. And It's the same thing. Sometimes the children, they come into the speech and language session and they want no parts of it. Okay, you put the child on a swing. You gently swing the child back and forth. 
all of a sudden the child is making eye contact, the child is making sounds, and we send our speech and language person in to do the speech and language session while the child is getting that input. I'm so glad you brought up dysregulation because I'm sure there are our parents and practitioners listening to this, and it's really important conversation to have at IEP meetings, at mm-hmm. meetings with um, the county if for early exactly. intervention or with the school district, because it also goes to the length of a session, for example, a speech and language session that a student needs. And as we know here in New York City, the default is 30 minutes. Correct. Uh, and there are children who are so dysregulated for the first 15 to 20 minutes that they're not getting the full benefit of that session, if any, if if any benefit whatsoever. And many of our children with autism need that proprioceptive and vestibular mm-hmm. intervention to help quiet their bodies exactly. so that they can access their learning. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. it's something I'm, so, I'm really glad that you brought it up because it's something that I think parents aren't aware of oftentimes mm-hmm. and they don't know to ask for it. And perhaps what the role of an occupational therapist is, in their child accessing their education. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. And I think if parents understand that too, even therapists, the child is not being naughty because he can't pay attention or he's jumping up or down or he's walking around the room and he won't sit at the table or he won't sit down on the floor. He's not a naughty child at all. He has to have that movement in order to just quiet himself. So if you insist on the child doing something without him being regulated or centrally quieted, it's a waste of your time and it's a waste of the child's time. We ask, okay, you begin your session and you're going to give the child 10 minutes of some kind of sensory input. Then you should, on top of that, start timing how long it lasts Does it last for the rest of the session so you get 20 minutes out of it and it even goes into the next session that the child has? Does it last for 10 minutes and then he's fidgeting and moving around again? Well, then you know it's not just giving sensory therapy to the child two times a day. You might have to give it every 10 minutes until his system learns how to regulate itself. And if we want our children with autism to make progress and really reach their potential. I never know what that really means, but it's individual for each child. So whatever the potential may be that's individualized for that person, we really need to understand this concept Mm -hmm. of getting... I mean, even, you know, you and I will need to center ourselves, quiet ourselves, Mm -hmm in order to be really good at what we do Mm -hmm. or to tackle something, whatever it is that we're doing, to learn something new. Absolutely. And for whatever reason, that concept seems to get lost a lot of the time. Well, some people think, you know, it's like voodoo. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, you're just playing with him. You're just playing with him. Well, the play has an underlying basis. And you're not just playing with him. He needs this. There's method to the madness. Yes. (laughs) I remember a client of mine telling me about 
Her son, he was about three, was getting CPSE intervention for speech, Mm -hmm. and he didn't want to sit and do speech. And the therapist would come in, and every time to get him settled, she would have him kick his feet up onto her lap, and she would massage his feet Mm -hmm. and give him foot rubbies Mm -hmm. so that he would get centered and be able to practice whatever it was they were practicing. Exactly. And Smart that, therapist. That, that was a beautiful, <laughs> yes, a brilliant therapist who did those types of things. So if you would be able to influence policy, perhaps, on, mm. a, on a large scale, we can start with our city, our, our new mayor, mm-hmm. Eric Adams. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and even nationally, what would your message be to our new mayor on what the city could do to help our our students? I think because primarily, I guess, because of finances, there's not all the money in the world. But I don't think that elected officials understand how much therapy is actually necessary to begin to make inroads with a child who's autistic. And so sometimes there are these formulas that just come about where most sessions are 30 minutes. Well, how did that happen? Was that a convenience? Was that because a 45-minute session is too expensive? So I wonder if there was really thought behind some of the rules and regulations that are there. I mean, children need initially a lot of one-on-one teaching and help. And 20 hours, yes, in New York City, you can get 20 hours if you have the diagnosis of autism. I've had children come to me who need more than 20 hours. I've had children who, who have come to me who need less. Right. All right. And and I don't mind saying that, okay? That's too much. I want him more to experience the typical things a child would be doing at his age. He can't. Yes. Yet. Exactly. Don't hold him back. So I think some of the rules and regulations also, say, for instance, the early intervention program. The early intervention program is so unbelievably underfunded, terribly underfunded. It hasn't, there hasn't been a raise in rates, I think, in, I may be wrong about this, but I think in about the past seven years. And it's always the first program that they go to cut. Well, it should never be because early intervention works. And it's been proven. Absolutely, it's been proven. So I think the enormity of what the therapeutic community is facing in terms of helping these children hasn't really been recognized by the powers that be that draw up these rules and regulations. The clinical people who practice this understand what it takes to get a child to respond to his name, to look at you when you call his name. It's not something that happens overnight. No, it's repetition, repetition, repetition exactly. with, with but skilled repi- practitioners. Repetition in a way that's not repetition, but still is exciting to the child, even though you are going over it again and again and again. Not in all 10 trials. You might spread the trials out over a whole hour's period of time. Right. 
Okay. Yeah. And so it's new to the child when it gets presented to the child. So I just think that if we want to do a good job, we shouldn't be stingy. And I'm saying that knowing that New York City has probably one of the most generous programs of any major city in the United States in terms of early intervention. And that's really a credit, but we could do so much more. I mean, for instance, classroom assistants who we have a whole program of training classroom assistants because many of them come not really knowing anything about ABA or autism. But that's us. We raise money for that and we pay for that ourselves. The city and state do not pay for that. But the city and state will only give us $15 an hour for these individuals. Now, you can work at McDonald's and get $15 an hour, maybe even more now, okay, and you get some benefits too. So how do they expect us to intervene with a child who has a very, very serious neurological disorder when the people that they're saying should be administering the program are being paid $15 an hour? Yeah, the resources are necessary to move forward and to support the students and their families. And and that that is always the tension is, Mm -hmm. you know, what does it take to actually achieve the objective? And I know that'll be a challenge in, you know, for this administration and for administrations to come. But it is it doesn't mean that we shouldn't look at it. Doesn't mean we shouldn't talk about it. Doesn't mean that we shouldn't examine it just because we know that it's a hard thing to do. Absolutely. And again, I think if we could do that, inches add up to feet, <laughs> feet add up to yards. And you can't have everything, you just can. But take the little increments that are given to you, work with them. And then you'll be ready for the next increment. And there can be evidence that can get presented to the powers that be that will allow them to understand why the next increment is important. That makes perfect sense to me. And I hope everybody listening, it makes perfect sense to you, too. I'd like to close on one one or two things. Sure. One thing that you and I haven't talked about, and you might not know the answer to this, but Globally speaking, with respect to autism, Mm -hmm. do you know of any country that is doing a really good job in addressing autism and educating students with autism? I think the countries that acknowledge that there's a real problem in terms of the numbers of children that they're seeing, I think many of them are, are using pretty much the same techniques And again, given their financial base, some may just choose to do ABA because that's all they can afford and no speech and language and no OT. But they're trying. They're certainly trying. But I don't think any of us have come up with the intervention because I don't think there can ever be the intervention because these children really are all so different that until we're able to subtype them, we we don't know what we're really doing. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, that subtyping will be really critical. Well, thank you so much. Is there any message you would like to give parents listening today before we go? I think I love what I do because autistic children are so incredibly gifted. 
all right, there are some areas where they have weaknesses, but there are some areas where they have absolutely mind-blowing strengths. It could be music. It could be art. It could be math. It could be computers, visual things that they see that other people can't really see at all. And I just wish that we could celebrate more the wonderful things that our children have. I think we spend so much time trying to smooth out (laughs) and correct. Well, maybe they shouldn't really be more like neurotypicals. Look at the mess neurotypicals are in, okay? (laughs) So I think if we could take their strengths and somehow understand that this is a way for them and to use their strengths as a way to buoy up some of the weak areas that they have. It really requires a lot of creativity, but they are absolutely amazing. And I, I just love seeing that in them. And, and I always tell the parents, you know, you should really spend time trying to foster this because this is, this is a gift. I know you think you've been cheated, but you've been given a gift in this area. That's a beautiful message. Thank you. Thank you so much for coming, Dr. McCartan. And I well, I hope you'll come back another time. I would time love to come back. <laughs> because we've touched on just a little bit of so much of what you know and can share. So thank you so much. Thank you, Tracy. Thanks for listening. Be sure to tune into our next episode. And please don't forget to subscribe to our podcast on your favorite streaming platform. And leave us a review. We love hearing from you.